Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. You started coughing, we haven't even started yet? Me, 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 me. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, it's good to have you. Uh, did you sing opera before you became a comedian and anti-Trump pro- protester? <laughs> no, no, but I, I did a lot of musicals as a kid. Got it. Okay, well, let's uh, let's jump in. I'm going to let you introduce yourself uh, rather than me have to create some boring introduction. Great. Uh, who are you? Why the hell are you sitting in my house? And should we finish this in the hot tub? <laughs> uh, my name is Baratunde Thurston. I needed a place to crash. Uh, and this is relatively free. And I am a comedian, I'm a writer, I'm an activist, and I blend all this stuff into a life that somehow has mostly paid for itself at this point. Um, And so I actually, you needed to stay at my place, and I said I would only let you stay if you did this podcast. This is my rent. So this is your rent. Yeah, I'm Uh, a boarder, and this is the compensation. So I, um, let's just tell people, so you you wrote a book called How to Be Black. I did. Uh, did. uh, You used to work for The Onion. Yep. uh, The Daily Show. Yep. Um, and what am I missing here? I, I talk a lot. You do talk I'm like a, a lot. Professional speaker. Mm-hmm. I have some history in the tech field, though I haven't coded something for real in a long, long time. Yeah. But we met through a technology event. Um, we'll two- argue about what year that happened. <clears throat> two thousand seven, probably two thousand nine. And uh, if only there were a way to know facts. Yes. But. So, well, actually, let's just start with the facts. Yes. Uh, um, so there's a lot of things I want to talk to you today about. Uh, um, it's actually there's one thing that I don't really want to talk to you today okay. about, but we are going to talk about because Great. I feel we need to, which is Kanye West, who I think may be the most annoying person on earth this week. This week. This yeah, week. It's mean, a rotating title. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good award show. <laughs> like the annoyees or something. I don't we know. We should Some do that. Oscars we for should, annoying we, people. We should start that. Yeah. Um, uh, we're going to talk about fake news. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about uh, Donald. J. Trump. Uh, we're going to talk about what else did we say we were going to talk about in the hot tub last Probably night? Probably some racial things. That's right. Um, race. Oh, data. No tech and oh, data. data and, uh, yeah. So where where should we begin? I mean, let's let's start with annoyance because then we can get that out of the way. Okay, so I feel like we are living in a culture, uh, and we have been for a while. Where um, if you look back 20, 30 years ago, uh, if you were a conspiracy theorist. Um, or an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, you may have gotten attention, but you were a small minority of those people that did. Yeah. And I feel like in the world we live in today, the assholes and the annoying people, the ones that want the most attention, are the at the center of the universe and um, of our attention universe. Yeah. Donald Trump is president. Kim Kardashian. Uh, I just gagged as I said right. that, that Kanye name. Kardashian. Kanye Kardashian. Like they are all just, just taking up the airwaves all yeah. the time, and we play into it. And Kanye, this last week, um, I just couldn't figure out what was going on. And can you can you kind of tell me? Yeah. So so um, for anyone who somehow missed it, uh, Mr. West went on another seeming like publicity tour of a moment, uh, aligned himself with Donald Trump 
fully and firmly appeared to have blamed slaves for slavery. Yes. Um, and, and saying that, you know, 400 years, that sounds like a choice to be a slave. And uh, just provocative, ignorant, wrong on the, on the information that he was sharing, elevated a, uh, a conspiratorial alt-right figure, Candace Owens, and literally shared a mic with her, which Kanye, as we all know, famously does not share mics. Mm-hmm, so it was a really mm-hmm. interesting moment for him to do that. For, for more analysis and assessment, I recommend people read Dream Hampton's uh, opinion piece in the New York Times that just ran yesterday. Uh, and she, she breaks it down. She's covered hip-hop and like black art for a long time and has done a great job. So I think it's a mix of a, of a person who's hurting. Uh, I don't want to be super pissed at Kanye. He's been through things. He has no tools to handle them. And he's aligned himself with people who bring out the worst in him. Like he's not in the deepest, most introspective, thoughtful home that he could have chosen in the country. You mean his wife is not, is not looking out for his best interest? <laughs> I, I, you know, whatever they think his best interest is, they are very much looking out for that, but it's not serving the rest of us. Got it. And he brings down others when he, he does this because he doesn't just represent himself anymore. So I feel some sympathy for him because it seems like he's been through some tragedies and he's gone through them very publicly and he's acknowledged going through like body modification, his mom's death, drugs, and he just continues on publicly. He's also so wealthy, he can create a wall around himself and his information. At the same time, he expects us to treat him as like some kind of leader and a god and a deity, and he is not really behaving as if he has our best interests at heart because he's saying some really harmful and hurtful things. So, so it's you, frustrating to be kind. <clears throat> it's frustrating to be kind. It, uh, okay, so, uh, well, you, you and I both lost our moms, and yeah. I don't see us tweeting about things like that. I mean, is it... No, but we're not the greatest artists of all time. Uh, so, with great power. Here I, here <laughs> like, you're I pretty thought, good at podcasting, Nick. Yeah, I'm Are you the greatest podcaster of all time? pretty good at hip-hopper. Do you want to hear my hip hopping? I do not. Okay, maybe uh, that's for the B side. Um, uh, so, okay, but in your opinion, as someone who's been doing this for so long yeah. and covering all this stuff and so on, um, do you think that is this is this just the new normal that like people God, like I, him? I hope not. I I want to. I'd rather believe in cycles than like some linear development. And we've had a history. We've had people who dominated the tabloids and the front pages. Uh, and then they receded. And we like we've had showboats and showmen. We've had Obamas, right? Like we've gone back and forth. We have very serious leaders. We have very clowns. We're in a more clownish phase right now, and the gatekeepers are not really there, or their business model encourages it. And then the rest of us can have our id, you know, kind of appeal to by clicking on these buttons to spread all the noise and the nonsense. So I hope that it's more of a cycle and less of a destiny. I don't. I don't know what I truly believe yet. But isn't technology making this worse? It's speeding up the process, for sure. Like, we don't have time to think about it, and it's relentless. You know, between the time that you pressed record and right now, we might be in a war. Kanye might announce that he's having a baby. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that could be going down. Or he's running for president as Trump's slave. Like, all of these things are possible. Yeah. Maybe they happened. Maybe they didn't. But the speed, technology really affects the speed. And our ability to reflect on any of the things that are happening and check them. So it, the last question about yeah. Kanye, because if I say his name again, I might, I might just uh, run to the wall head first. And <laughs> you could use that, that New York Times style of Mr. West. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. West. Um, what's the best way to deal with these people? Like, is it, do you kind of try to just block them out? Like I see people muting them all on, yeah. on Twitter and Facebook and all these places. Or do you try to 
engage, which is just giving him attention? Do you, how, I what's mean, the I, thing? I think his friends should engage. At, at, they have tried. No, yeah. We know because he puts their texts out on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like John Legend engage, yeah. and now I know that they both have iPhones. It was blue, so it's like yeah. not surprising, but yeah. kind of comforting yeah. to know that very rich people are using the very expensive device. Like the world makes sense a little <laughs> bit. Uh, Ti reached out to him, like another person from his field, and acknowledged that Kanye didn't even know that Trump had proposed this Muslim ban. So I think the people who can reach him, who are close, should continue to try to reach him. Yeah. I think the rest of us need to be talking to the people he's also talking to and undoing the damage he's doing. Yeah. Uh, I think what Van Lathan did in the TMZ video, yeah, calling was, him out yeah, in completely. the moment, was great. Because otherwise, you know, if you grow up looking up to somebody like that and just watch them rant unchecked, you assume they're telling the truth. Like, why would you assume otherwise the guy who gave you meaning, whose music gave you life in somewhat literal sense and gave you esteem and hope and a perspective that mirrored yours, and now he's mouthing off about foreign policy and domestic politics? He's probably right about that, too. So, so I think people like Van are doing a good job. I'm sad that he had to do that, and the interviewers didn't do it, right? He was literally off mic and off camera and did a Hail Mary, like, wait up, hold up, wait a minute. So I want more people to do that. And if you're hearing him or your kids are hearing him, it's a, unfortunately yet another teachable moment, a growth opportunity to explain to them why this is whack and wrong. So Candace Owens, who he's now BFFs with, um, the Fox commentator who uh, had a, a, a little video go viral on, um, uh, on the internets, on the, the interwebs last week, which was uh, she was giving a talk uh, at a, I don't know what the event was, but there were some Black Lives Matters folks that uh, started protesting and she didn't kick them out. She responded to them with the commentary of, you know, this is a choice. Slavery happened next number of years ago um, and you continue to use it to your gain and yeah. so on. And and that seems to be kind of what Kanye jumped onto. Um, what's the story with Candace and the folks that, that you know support her kind of level yeah. of thinking. I don't know her. Yeah, and I don't know her history deeply. Yeah, I do know her argument. Yeah, <laughs> because there's always been a percentage. Like there's like 11 percent of black males in America align with Trump, like support him. Mm -hmm. So that's about one in ten. That's a little much for my comfort. <laughs> and that number has gone up. There's a big margin of error. Pardon me. <clears throat> but first of all, it's very painful to acknowledge that that history affects the now. Mm -hmm. I think it's a cleaner story. It is a more egotistical story to say, I survived, I thrived. I made this for me. Why can't you? I own this house. I'm married with kids. I got this good life. Why can't you? You're blaming something that happened before you were born. I'm not. I'm good. You're bad. Right. So there's a superiority. There's an arrogance. There's a simplicity that separates you from the rest of those losers. Mm -hmm. And Trump is like that. Right? So Kanye and Trump are very similar in that they see the world as losers and they're the winners. And we should all bow down Even to them. Even though they are the most insecure Absolutely. Of of but yeah. you hide insecurity with more declarations of security uh, and power and, and awesomeness. So someone like Candace or that argument, you know, the, the truth of American history is too painful for people to reckon with. Like if I physically visited the AFAM Museum, the Smithsonian, in D.C. just over a month ago. And I know a lot of that history. And I still cried. And it's like, it breaks you down. You're like, oh, this is compound pain. And out of that, beautiful things have been born, but it's pain underneath of all that. So it's psychologically protective, I think, for people like Candace to say, slavery didn't affect me. I wasn't a slave. 
you're choosing to live in that mentality because it would be too painful for her to look and say, well, it actually does affect, if not me, people like me. And so if you can separate yourself from people who are struggling and suffering, that makes you better. If you can separate yourself from a history that's built on pain and suffering, that makes you uh, better. So there's a self-interest and there's a reward. Attention, yep. money, platform, accolades, uh, and you get to play a different type of victim. right? So the irony here is that America's built on victimizing a ton of people. Acknowledging that is painful for all Americans. White Americans, brown Americans, black Americans, it's like, oh, what, are we just products of theft and pain and all that stuff? And so you, someone like Candace separates themselves and says, I'm not a victim, I'm a victor. But then they play aggrieved when people call them out on the misinformation they're peddling. Hmm. And they play victim to the left, to the peddlers of pain, to the, the, the Democratic Party, which they like to call the Democrat Party because it sounds like more douchey to say it that way. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a low road. Like it's like a little rhetorical dig. Like a Democrat Party. Snowflake. Yeah. It's like, so you're being petty and your, your brand is I'm not a victim, but your path is victim. And you use victimhood when, when, when they're speaking. Trump is a victim, right? This is the man with the most power in the world and he still needs to play the victim. It's the, now it's the deep state. Like you control the largest military ever assembled. You sit atop the largest economy the world has ever known, and yet you're still the loser. And so you're still the so, victim. And so, you, what is your? Re why do you think that that is for people? I think there's, <laughs> I think there's comfort in it. I think being feeling like you know it puts anything you do wrong or any criticism that might be sound, it's it dismisses it because the people leveling it, they're jealous. Uh, they don't understand you. They're afraid of you. I mean, even the language that Kanye was using, you fear free thought. It's mm -hmm. like, no, I fear whack thoughts. I fear dangerous thoughts. Like you're not, this is not free thinking. This is free of thinking. Like you're literally, your thinking is faulty. And so I think uh, people lean on that because it, it allows them to avoid acknowledging that they might be wrong, that they're insecure, that they have doubts, that they're, like, they may just not know something. Like Trump mostly doesn't know stuff. But he can't acknowledge that. So all news is fake, right? That's how, like, your insecurity has to be so high that any criticism must be a lie, mm. perpetuated by billions of people. He is the world's biggest conspiracy theorist because he thinks we're all out to get him, and it's not even about him, you know? Um, all right, so let's switch gears a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you have been working on re recently a lot of stuff with uh, data and privacy and security, and you have these theories that the the world that we live in today, of um, where everything is collected and and put into a little algorithm and stored in a big database, yeah. is going to be atrocious for the world we live in tomorrow. <laughs> is that a, a apt? Can that you... is that's pretty fair. It's not it's not my thinking alone, though I have been talking about it more recently. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was honored a few years ago. I got this award at South by Southwest. Mm -hmm. It was uh, like a Hall of Fame award. And I'm like young, so I'm like, is, are they trying to, is this, is this it? Is this am, the I end? Going, am I going out to right? pasture? Is this how I find out that my <laughs> life is over? <laughs> I feel like I've like done a third of the stuff I want to do. But in, in, when I, in, in accepting that, I had this phrase where, you know, technology people, and you covered this field formally for much longer than I've been even a part of it, we're making the world a better place. And it's been an assumption that all this tech makes things better uh, and that progress just kind of passively happens if you apply 
bits to it and processing resources and like memory. But what if we're making the world a worse place faster, right? Goodness isn't a guaranteed outcome of investing. Yep. And, and so when you start thinking about machine learning, data processing, algorithms, we could make things really hard for ourselves. Police departments are starting to use this data to determine where they send police resources. Sentencing, like courts are using it to develop sentencing guidelines. Teachers are being assessed. How, wait, how, are, they, how are they using it in courts? So they're using it to determine um, what the, the bail settings are for people. And they're getting this data from just the From same. our racist history. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and, then how are they, and then how are they determining the, the bail settings based on that? So they will, based on where you live, mm. they will determine a risk of your recidivism likelihood you know, to commit a crime in between your court date you know, and now. And so they will set a number or they'll set a guideline for probation or sentencing around that, not based on your behavior, just based on your zip code. And also not based on trying to avoid you ending up back in prison, but trying to keep you in there. Yeah. And, 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 and um, you know, Kathy O'Neill's written a beautiful book, Weapons of Math Destruction. Sophia Noble has a phrase, Algorithms of Oppression. These are two names people she got get familiar with, and that's just on the algorithmic side. But when, you know, the idea of looking at a large set of data to make better decisions in the future, that sounds dope. Like, I do it every day. I love spreadsheets. But if the data that you're looking at is itself corrupted, then the future you're building will be corrupted. And so the history that we're building all this data on is corrupt. Like, policing has been racist in the past. So if you look at historical racist policing data, you'll create, like a racist RoboCop future, right? We'll have a racist Skynet future if we don't intervene and try to make some actively different choices. So what do you think are some of the, the things that could happen? I mean, is it that we Well, will... I said racist Skynet, so yep. we'll have drones. Okay. But, <laughs> but is it that uh, you go to apply for a job and uh, they know who you are before you... They know more about you than you do and then decide if you're going to be the right candidate? I mean, what? give me some examples. Yeah, yeah. Of... So, I mean, look, there are great scenarios already. Like Netflix tells me about a German series that I would love that I never would have known, and I lose productivity more effectively because of that. So that's a dope algorithm for Netflix. Maybe for my earning potential, not so much, but I am entertained. Like they're delivering on a promise. The future job market might be as simple as I don't even see the job offer because it is targeted away from me based on assumptions about who would do this job well. Or I get a different mortgage rate based on some assessment of my likelihood to pay that is unsound but rolled out rapidly and at scale, building on all these other signals that I have not given explicit consent that that's how you should deal with me as a possible customer. Or law enforcement stuff. Like I can always come back to law enforcement because it's literally life and death. So it will be subtle. I don't think it's necessarily going to be digitally enhanced jackbooted thug showing up at your door. Nice Wayne Lapierre reference there. Thank you. Thank you. But you could just, we could all have these fragmented realities some with more opportunity, some with more freedom than others. And we will have enabled it today by accepting terms of service that we didn't fully understand, by allowing a level of tracking that we thought was just helping us drive more efficiently, but was also powering these other major decisions about credit, about jobs, about love, about communications that we didn't have truly informed consent about when we made that choice today. Hmm. So is there a way to not end up in this world without without not using the products? Yeah, yeah. good question. Uh, and I'm not an advocate of unplugging everything. 
I am surrounded by Apple products right now. <laughs> and, uh, and I get great joy and some productivity and just like whimsy out of all this stuff. You want to buy my used iPad? I'm not really using it. Nah, anymore. I'm good. I got, I got, got enough it. iPads. Got it. <laughs> one is actually enough. Yes. I, I it turns out I actually think one is probably too much. Too, for many people. For many people. Yeah. 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 But for the planes, I'm on planes all the time. It's like, then, anyway, I'm yeah. not here to sell iPads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's literally the opposite of what I'm trying to talk about. <laughs> Damn it. That's how good they are. Yeah. Like I just went from criticizing tech to selling tech in a second. Wait, so how do we, how do you, what are you supposed to do? It's like we have these, Yeah. I mean, I don't use social media that much anymore. I bear, I don't even have Instagram on my phone. I, and that's know. a big step. I don't know if you've disclosed how much you were such a baller on Instagram back in the oh, day. Oh, I remember. Like it was, you, it was I was like, one of the first people on there. Yeah, you had so many followers. Like, I remember talking to our friends, of, like, Nick is really killing it on this. His I was using it all the time. I was the East I loved River. It because I, my, my photo of that, that photo we took of that cappuccino yeah. is, just, <laughs> is just really breathtaking. Yeah. Um, I, no, I, I was a photographer. You know, I started taking photos in high school. My dream job was to be a war photographer. Literally, like, I read all the books. I, wow. I, like, interned for James Noctaway's uh, black and white printer. I, you know, that was the dream job for me. And so somehow I ended up covering tech for the New York Times and Vanity Fair. But, but eventually, you know, when Instagram came out, I remember I, it was, I knew the guys that had started it, and, and, and I downloaded it instantly and was yeah. like, this is amazing. And... And I thought it was really great. And then all of a sudden, I, I found myself just scrolling yeah. and scrolling yeah. and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Which is what they want you to do because they hacked your brain, right? And, and you talked about this on the I show. And I didn't feel like, yeah, and I didn't feel like I there was anything good coming yeah. out of it. I didn't feel like a, if I read a book, even if it's a bad book or I don't agree with the book or something or yeah. watch a movie that is, you know, informative or entertaining or, or heartfelt or something like I go, I walk away and I think about it and there's some emotion. You turn off Instagram. That's it. Yeah. It's you, the, that's a, a period of your life. Turn on is, Instagram, turn off your brain. Yeah, right? exactly. It's, it's like super TV. But so, so, but, so but you can't do that with everything. Yeah. So what yeah, is walking away is uh, a luxury, honestly, yeah. for some people, or psychologically, financially, and socially, very expensive, right? It's like, don't have a phone line. Okay, don't have friends. You know, just get rid of your cell phone. That's cool. Like, if you live in an enclave, or if you're Amish, or if you're in, like, a hunter-gatherer type society, <laughs> like, there are places where you don't really need a cell phone, but in the modern world, they're hard to find. Uh, so, in terms of, like, managing personal data, I think there's some ways that we can go as individuals. Right? There, there's a responsible consumer kind of mindset, buyer beware sort of thing. Read a couple terms of service, understand the privacy settings, like get, get your hands a little dirty and play around. But I think the problem's too big to rely on like us individually making better choices because they are collectively undermining them with trillions of dollars worth of value extraction. Like they literally have machines countering our will yep. and they're learning and they're getting better which is it. what my, the podcast last week was about with Tristan so, and, and not just on the the behaviors that they're encouraging but on the value they're extracting like it is in their economic interest to track us as much as possible to target us like we've taken all the greatest engineering minds of the world to sell us ads right and that's like underwhelming at a minimum so I think there's some structural stuff that we could do which involves we don't have to build a world where we extract the maximum amount of data to sell stuff that we don't want to people who don't need it. Like that was a choice that we made and we could make a different choice. So we could censor this not on advertising money, but on value that we get from the service, like me and you as the users of the service. We could change the dynamic. So you know, a company like Facebook will say your data is yours, 
but they don't operate that way. No. Right? They extract a bunch of stuff, mostly without our knowledge. It turns out other people are doing things mostly without their knowledge. <laughs> right? <laughs> but they had no incentive to protect our data because it wasn't ours. In their minds, legally, financially, it was theirs to do with as they pleased. And it was their business model. Yeah. And so, and their investors were cool with it. The markets were cool Wall with Street it. The was press cool. was cool with it. Everybody was celebrating, writ large, everybody, a big quotation mark. But if it was ours, like if somebody came to your house and took all your kids' toys and all your computers and all your clothes, and when you were off at work, they were renting it out to other people, selling it, tr making triple money on top of it, and you got none of that, that would be criminal burglary at scale. That is like conspiracy to rob a people. And that's the business model of these companies. So I think we have to adjust whose data is it? Okay. Like if we assumed it was ours and we had to consent and we got value out of it, I think that would shift some of these incentives around. So I agree with you completely. And I think that, you know, it would be like me saying, hey, everyone, let's just not pay attention to Kanye this week. You know, let's yeah. just, he's, he, he didn't take like, his meds. Just say no doesn't work at scale. It, exactly. So <laughs> how, so how do we counter this yeah. if, I mean, if they're the only, if the only way you can counter is by not interacting, how do we do it? No, because so, so we that, can't not so interact. So that's not the only way. Okay. And I think I haven't been clear enough. I think we need to change our, our rules, our regulations, our norms at a minimum. But as we're finding out with our president, norms aren't always enough. So probably rules that say this stuff belongs to us. It will slow down the extraction and allow us to you know, consent or not consent at smaller levels. I think the people who are building on top of us, who are like mining us, it's like a handful, right? It's Amazon, it's Facebook, it's Google, Alphabet, it's Tencent and Baidu, like there's 10 companies. They shouldn't be the only ones, like we should be able to use that too. And you see this effort to get researchers working with Facebook. You see Google just announcing they're not going to sell ads for jail bail bondsmen, because that is the most exploitative commercial operation we have, which is built on the legacy of slave catching. Like that's not something you should want your corporate legacy to be a part of. Mm. So there are ways to use these tools for something other than what they've been used for. And I think that if we unlock some of that creativity for us, then it won't be so lopsided. It's not just that they're doing bad things that we haven't fully consented to, it's that we are not being allowed to control the use of ourselves either. And that would balance the scales. You know, it's really interesting. A, a few weeks ago, I uh, was talking to someone from YouTube and uh, who formerly used to be YouTube. And I, they were saying to me that uh, when there was the backlash to all these videos, yeah. uh, the ones that were targeting kids, the all these different things, uh, that advertisers actually started to pull out. Mm -hmm. And it, it massively affected their bottom line last year. And I think that... Um, that the more vociferous we are, yeah. the, 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 you can actually have an impact. Yeah. Uh, and the, the more noise people make, uh, there, there will be repercussions. What's so sad though, is, you know, you see what happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, uh, and Zuckerberg goes before Congress. And next thing you know, they have 70 million new daily active users. I have a theory though, actually, yeah. my theory is that those 70 million daily active users that are now using it more yeah. or whatever it was, uh, that they were signing up trying to figure out how to change their privacy Absolutely. settings. No, I mean, if you, if, you look, if you did a heat map of the Facebook site where that activity was happening, exactly. it's on the settings page. Yeah. It's on that app setting that no one ever looked at before. Yeah. And they're like, 400 apps have access to my religious preferences. What? <laughs> I just wanted a discount on burritos, man. Like, that is not a fair trade. 
Um, so, so those are a few things. I'll, um, these guys set defaults. You know, defaults determine destiny. It's not a thing I've ever said before, but I think it, their default was all your data belongs to us. You can set a different default, which gives us control. If they can create a layer of drones to provide wireless internet to rural parts of the earth, they can allow us more control over our privacy settings. Like this is technically possible. They just weren't encouraged to do it. Their yeah. investors didn't make them do it. The press didn't hold them to it early on. And they built an empire on lazy forms of exploitation and like a certain lack of creativity. But they've been creative in so many other things. They've proven they can. They can. Absolutely. So no, I, they, there's no excuse. So we got we to gotta hold them to the fire a little differently too. Okay, so I have a question. So last night I, I found myself on the internet uh, and I started reading about um, uh, chlorine and uh, and I ended up – I'll get to why. Yeah. Uh, I ended up on a Wikipedia page and reading about the guy who invented chlorine, who also invented um, – it was in Germany during World War One. This is a classic internet rabbit hole. This man. is a classic internet rabbit hole, but, but stay with me here. Okay. Um, and he, he also invented uh, the – the things that helped plants grow, he, he invented, uh, you know, the water. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he must be rich if he invented water. No, I, I, it might, it's, I might, it's escaping my brain. Sure. Uh, okay. the, the, when you, you water, you give food to your plants. Yeah. What is it called? Plant food. Kind of. That's just called <laughs> the chemical turn is plant I'm real food. smart. Y'all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but he also created the first chemical weapons. He's considered the father of, of, oh, of chemical wow. warfare, uh, mustard gas, <laughs> things like that, okay. so on and so forth. The, the, the things that he created, these chlorine gases and so on, also later after he died, ended up becoming the thing that we used to fight cancer, right? Mm. So this was an individual, and he was fully aware. He, he, he had no qualms um, with, with creating things that helped society yeah. or destroy society. He said death is death and there's nothing, there's no difference in how you die in his mind. Really kind of a fucked up individual. Uh, um, but the thing that I was thinking about in terms of, of, of what he did is, from one hand, you get chemical weapons that killed millions of people mm -hmm. or hundreds of thousands of people during, during the First World War and now are being used in Syria and so on. But on the other hand, you get the things that are used for chemotherapy yeah. to, 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 cure, to cure cancer, um, quite literally. When, it, when you look at technology and, and social media and all of these things that are happening and the, the denigration of democracy and the, the heightening of, of, of celebrity yeah. in a very negative way, the, the fact that kids, this study after study after study that says kids on Instagram are more depressed than kids that aren't, Facebook is, is you know, taking your data and, and yeah. knows what, what color underwear you're wearing, all these things. Do you think that the, the pros outweigh the cons? It's, do you know what I'm I mean, saying? I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, it's like, you, on one hand, you've got, you've got Black Lives Matter and Me Too and this, that, and the other. Yeah. On the other hand, you have Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have misinformation and fighting and... No, and they're both unleashed by the same force. Exactly. Uh, and they're both built with the same set of tools, yep. to even be more literal about it. I, I don't know, Nick. It's not an obvious that, it's, that pros win. Um, and I want pros to win, but I think there's a deeper, I, I, I'm not trying to get out of the question and get all like law school. Like I challenged the premise of the question, mm -hmm. but I think we're being exposed as people that we can't answer that questions like that aren't answered passively. We act on them to make the answer we want to be more true. 
which means we have to engage with it. And it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, like tech doesn't just bring goodness. It doesn't bring better life. It can bring better, like faster and worse death. This guy that you just found through your internet rabbit hole speech is proof of that. Curing cancer, killing people. Innovation, science, progress, magic, technology. And who was around him to influence that development? Who funded it to go one way or the other? How was it socialized? Were people who were gonna be using the product involved in its deployment? Or was it some group off in a distance assuming they knew all the use cases, unleashing this on everybody and not seeing or not anticipating bad actors and negative users? Facebook was warned many, 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 many times about the harm that this platform could cause. They chose to not incorporate that feedback into the product well over a decade ago. Sorry, fertilizer. That's what he invented. <laughs> <laughs> AKA plant food. Yeah, okay. plant food. All right, keep going, keep going, keep going. So, so I, I don't, because if we, if we solve this question by saying the pros win, then that lets us off the hook. And we're like, well, net, net, more good will happen, so let's charge forward. If we resolve this question and say the cons win, then it's like, well, we got to stop. I mean, no matter how much good comes from, the evil will outweigh the good, so we shouldn't do this anymore. And we've been at this for long enough in our history as a species that whether we're talking about cars or wheels or axes or planes or fertilizer, it can swing either way. And the difference isn't inherent, I don't think, in the technology. It's like how we approach it and like can we change what we put into the system to alter that answer and make the pros win more. Because uh, I just, if the cons win, then what do we do? I don't know. And if the pros win, it's like hands off. We just have to tolerate the evil that comes from these systems. And that and, doesn't seem right. And so it seems, it seems to me that what you're saying is that the, there's a responsibility for the people that make the thing to ensure that the, 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 the positives outweigh the negatives. To, to the best, I think there's a, there's a new ring of accountability that we have. You know, here's what is happening. I think the cost of being um, of ignorance is increasing. Because the speed of these tools development is so fast, you know, the development of the automobile and how far that, how long that took to saturate the planet is like orders of magnitude slower than what we've experienced with mobile phones or with social media or what we're likely to experience with artificial intelligence. So the cost of getting it wrong is much higher. <laughs> and uh, so in that sense, things are different. But yeah, more accountability. More accountability, which, you know, not just, so for the people who make it, who's making it? Let's just start there. Who are the people making it? And who are the people funding the making of it, right? If we had more people who were subject to these technologies, actually involved in the development of them, we would have different outcomes. Just like if more women were involved in medical studies, like the development of pharmaceuticals would be different. They were all tested on male bodies. So who's in the room? Let's get Hamilton on it. Who's in the room where it happens? Widen that set. One, one important step. Do you worry that the future, I mean, I get to AI a lot in, this, yeah. in these conversations, but the, the, the people building AI are pretty much affluent white people? I worry about that for about, many uh, things. And, and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I worry about that for television programming. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but okay, the, it seems that the potential- Food trucks. So he, the thing Yoga. that's so fascinating for what you say, food trucks. Yeah, just there's a lot of things affluent it's, white people are driving it's right It's true. It's, it's definitely true. Um, the, when you think about the okay, so one thing that's so fascinating that I think a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of the the, the world that we live in today is not a direct result of 
of even of Trump or even Obama. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of it is actually a direct result of Reagan. You know the the initiatives that Reagan put forward. Yeah. You know, removing the mental health system, uh, some of the new gun law, the 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 fact that there were the gun laws were overturned yeah. in in the seventies. Um, all these different things around the economy, uh, agriculture, so on and so forth, or are direct results of decisions that were made in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the imprisonment are actually a direct result of things that Clinton did in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to see the effects of what, we're not even seeing the effects necessarily of what Obama did yet. Yeah. And we're not going to see the effects of what Trump has done for a decade plus. Do you, is the mm-hmm. thing, is this something that you worry about? I mean, I worry about with AI that these people who are affluent and white and make $500,000 to $10 million a year or whatever it is, are building the future and the negatives, the negative repercussions that could come with that. Yeah. No, very worried. Very worried. But we, wh- is, there, is there something that can be done? Lock them up. Lock <laughs> them up. Lock them up for future crimes. Don't, tr- don't look now, but there's a robot right behind you that nice. is about to decapitate you. Awesome. Awesome. From the future. From the future. Hello, Terminator. Um, yeah, I, I do worry about it, like, truly in many things. And I think the cost is higher because it's infecting everything, right? It's good. Yep. Intelligence of some kind will be in the air we breathe, probably in the future or very close to it. We are installing monitors in our houses uh, for, for some gains right now that we can't see the cost of later. But so, so what do we do with that? Um, and I think, you know, initiatives like OpenAI, there's a group, I don't know, Crawford, Su- not Susan Crawford, there's a... There's a group who has an AI Now Institute. Like they're starting to ask these questions before. We'll, we'll just call them the Plant Food Institute. The Plant Food Institute, yes. <laughs> I know it's called the AI Now Institute. I can't remember the names of the women who run it. Um, but they're, start, they're asking those questions now before it's like embedded in every object in our homes and in our lives and in our kind of economies. And I don't, you know, do we not do it at all? I don't think that's possible. I think mm-hmm. there's too much money behind oh, it not, already. There's, well, yeah, right? there's, there's too much greed. There's too much curiosity, natural or inflated by economic I was desires. At the, I was at the Milken Institute last week, um, and you know, tickets are fifty thousand dollars. It's all wow. I didn't pay. I, I went on Go a press Nick. pass. <laughs> um, and there was a there was a session on AI yeah. and the singularity, and they had these. You know, it was four white guys and one white woman on yeah. stage, and um, actually there was an Indian guy and. Uh, and and I was so excited because I was like, oh, they're going to these. They're very powerful people in the yeah. room. There's you know officials from the U.S. government that were there speaking. You know, Paul Ryan was there, and, and I mean, he doesn't count. Uh, he doesn't. He's count, abdicated right. his yeah. Uh, role. But there were you know the U.S. Commerce Secretary, uh, and I was I said, oh, this is going to be great. They're going to have this conversation about what could go wrong. And the entire conversation yeah. was about all the ways that they can the people on that stage could make more money. Uh, and all the financial upsides. And uh, people kept asking, even the moderator, who was this Forbes uh, contributor, said, is there anything you worry about? Yeah. And there was one guy who was like, no, I think it's going to be great. I don't think we need to worry about anything. And job ah. loss. And, it, and I was just like, oh, my God, I, I wanted to scream. Yeah, we're going to get this so wrong. That's, uh, not, that's not cool. No, it's not. So, so cause, because I, <laughs> I'm pretty optimistic, like by default. My default setting is pretty optimistic. With a sprinkling of like history happened, don't forget that people can be horrible, but we can be better. It's my mantra. We can be, and hearing that is depressing and infuriating because I know we can make a different choice. Like AI doesn't have to just be used to stalk us and sell us garbage. 
it can be used to like expand justice, right? We can use it. We have 17 different thousand police forces in this nation. Seven, what, how many? 17,000. Police forces. Yeah, it's a highly fragmented market to use like business speak. And they got different rules and regulations and behaviors. And last week, I, was, I emceed a celebration of the science of justice because this organization, the Center for Policing Equity, partnered with Google.org to use data and analysis to bring more justice to the police departments. They got police chiefs on board to let academics in, look at their raw data, understand bias, understand use of force, where that overlap negatively, and the community is a part of this effort. So in a literal room, there are Black Lives Matter activists, police chiefs, technologists, and academics using tech for more justice, not more inequality, more inequity, more horrors. So it's technically possible, man, and it's so frustrating that you're at a, an event of super brains, and all they can talk about is- I would say super wallets. Super more. wallets yeah. with, with you know, well-supported uh, brains, right? with coddled brains, with encouraged brains, and their priority is getting richer. And that's, I'm sure there were a few other things, but basically that's, they want to make more money and they're only looking at like, the upside for the part of the world they can see. And in a lot of science fiction movies, you know, when the aliens come, when we start doing interplanetary exploration, you get like this international commission of people. Like on behalf of the human race, we got to sign off on this. And so you have delegates from all parts of the world and we're going to coordinate our response to the invasion or our funding of the exploration, whether inbound or outbound. It's too big of a problem to leave to just one nation. And I feel like the artificial intelligence future and tech in general is just too big of an opportunity and too big of a risk to leave to the people who happen to have the pedigree and the social status and the historic inheritance of privilege to derive that future for the rest of us. Like it's irresponsible for our species to have that panel drive the future for everybody. So we don't need to lock them up, but we do need to calm them down and, and diversify them. And we need to hold our political leaders accountable. Paul Ryan obviously doesn't represent us. Like he represents the billionaire non-taxpayers of the world. And he's fine with everything else that's going on so long as he got his damaging tax cut. But technically his job is a check and balance within our government, and I think on the behalf of the people he represents, which as speaker isn't just the folks of, you know, Janesville, Wisconsin, which he doesn't, shouldn't even represent because of gerrymandering. That's probably, probably another show. <laughs> like, he's an artificial representative. Yes, he is like, he is AI yes. in, in a way. Like, he only exists because of an algorithm that defined a border that he could win. Mm -hmm. So he can't win in a fair fight. That's what I'm That's saying. That's why he's not going to That's why fight. he's running from Iron Stash. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's 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 wind down here. Yeah. Um, uh, calm me down, my goodness. And let's talk about something good. <sighs> um, comedy. So you mm. have been a comedian for what decade now? More? Oh man, uh, technically, uh, I don't know. I've been producing comedic material since 1996. I started with a comedy newsletter in college, so we're like 22 years in to the field in some form or other, whether it's stand-up or book writing or lecturing. You know. and, uh, and you were at The Onion. I was. The Daily Show. It's a great um, job. Actually, great job. you know what? This is not going to be, this is not going to be happy. I'm going <laughs> to ask you. Uh, so, okay. So The Onion, you guys create these kind of fake funny stories um, and you've been doing it for a long time mm -hmm. and they're great. Um, do you think that did that is there a world in which that played an influence on the world that we live in today of fake news? Oh, hmm. And as you think about this, yeah. the thing that I've come to realize as of late is that the and this is the another topic I want to get to before we wrap up, yeah. but um the 
the, the, the rise of the right, there is no question whatsoever that the rise of the right is in a response to the rise of the left and the, and the, the PC world that we now have to live in. Um, and I say have to because I feel like it goes too far mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Um, and we can talk about that. Uh, and the, the, the response was the, the alt-right and, and, and so on and so forth. And people have been talking about this, sociologists and psychologists and uh, even the Unabomber have been talking about this for decades, that this was, this was what was going to happen. Um, and, and I wonder if, if that inadvertently, you know, things like The Onion yeah. kind of helped give, set a, a, a playbook essentially for uh, the fake news world that, I, I will not own that okay. uh, because it feel it make me feel terrible. I'm yeah. gonna pull a Candace Owens. I'm trying and say to, that's not my history. I'm gonna, okay. I'm gonna try to make you feel terrible. By <laughs> Those folks chose that. Yeah. All right, I'm independent of my past. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm I will cop to to that. There's definitely a relationship. I think what the Onion wasn't created in an organized, funded, weaponized manner to like undermine faith in the idea of information. Um, and what was it created to do? I mean, it, it is created artistically to, to comment on society. I think it's created as a like satire in general, as an art form, is a check on authority and uses tools of language to highlight hypocrisies, discrepancies, abuses of power, just behaviors of those who are installed, whether it's going back to, um, who's my man? Plant food? Plant guy? food. Fertilizer. <laughs> Mr. What is going way back to someone like Horace, you know, yeah. which is like ancient, literally, um, or to some of our more contemporary voices? America pushed this a lot. Whether it's you know the Dick Gregories of the world who were using scathing satire, Frederick Douglass was using scathing satire in some of his work. So it, it's a tool of expression to call out things. And um, I think what the right has done with it is far less artistic, um, in some ways, and far more targeted. In others, like they are chipping away at some of the foundational blocks that are like the premise of society itself, that we can agree that certain things happened. The Onion was never challenging reality so directly and certainly wasn't undermining it. It was, I think, artistically pushing at it. And, you know, there is this alternate universe that it was creating, but it was, to most people, clearly as art, not as um, propaganda. You know, I think there's a difference between, and it can be a blurry line, between the art of something like The Onion and the propaganda of you know, the 4chans, cu- coupled with the Breitbarts, coupled with funding from who knows who. Oh, yeah. Uh, from, from Mercer, right? Yep. And, and weaponized. Like The Onion wasn't weaponized and, and targeted in such, a, such an interesting way. So there, uh, there is a relationship do you think that uh, the execution is totally different? Do you think that we that the that there is a world of a, a we live in a post truth world? Do you think that there is a world in which we act, will ever be able to live in a truth world again? Yeah, yeah. How? Because I kill. There are cycles to these things, and um, I don't think history repeats. I don't think it's a circle. I've said this in some other places before. If anyone's ever heard me speak before, I think it's a spiral, and so we revisit familiar coordinates, but it's never exactly the same. And you're spiraling up, not down. 
literally, just for you guys that are listening, understand, I had a visual of my hand in a spiral moving in an upward, See, positive I, direction. In, in my mind, I was spiraling down. Because you hear spiral, yeah. and he thinks down. Yeah. And I think probably... Let me just ask you a question. People, this glass, there's a glass of water here. Is that half full or half empty? It is a glass with great potential. <laughs> <laughs> That glass could be filled with more justice, Nick. That's so, what I see an opportunity. You see an AI opportunity. <laughs> yes. uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think that um, – I think we can get to a place where we have some shared reality again. And I say that because um, backlash is part of progress. Like there is a history of this. If we look at the brief life of the United States of America, we had it. We had a formal slave state where it was baked into the Constitution, built the economy, and we undid a big chunk of that. We had Reconstruction right after that. We had record numbers of black male legislators elected to state houses all over the country. Public education came from those legislators. Right? That happened. We, people were getting land. We were back on our feet. We had an Equal Rights Amendment proposed that wouldn't come about in the Civil Rights Movement for another 90 years. And then the Klan came. It was like, nah. We're going to bury all your stuff down. Like, that's too much for us. Our whiteness is so fragile, we can't accept your blackness being human. Mm. Uh, and so we crushed it. And we swing forward and we yank back. And so, like, Trump is a backlash to Obama. Yep. Right? And, and there is a relationship that is not just about the present moment. I think it's part of the flow of history and societies in general. And how we manage that, we can get better at uh, that's why I think we'll manage our way back you, to something more like truth. Do you think, and I know this is not your expertise, but I think what you just said I've is... never is, stopped me before, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an American, all right? Um, I'm an entertainment. No, but what you this. said is completely correct. Everything is a backlash to everything. Like I said before, the, the right was a backlash to the left, and, and, and there will be a response, and there's a response to the right, which Blue is... Blue waves you know, are coming, right? But it's, it seems that, and, and I don't know the history of this, but it seems that just in my lifetime, those... Uh, the, that spiral has become more volatile. Yeah. It's it's it is it's just crashing mm -hmm. to the left, crashing to the right. Higher beta is it? Uh, a higher a higher beta. So like it's it's intense. Yes. Um, and I feel like technology is doing that. I mean, you know, this week there was a New Yorker story by Ronan Farrow that you know the uh, the AG Eric Schneiderman, Eric Schneiderman yeah. had um, had been you know beating up uh, girlfriends and been violent and so on and so forth, and. Three, not even three hours, two hours and 57 minutes he resigned yeah. after that piece. In, in a, a world ten, a decade ago, it would have taken months. Yeah. I mean, it probably would have resulted, hopefully would have resulted in the same thing, but it would have, in the speed, I mean, you literally could have been in a movie yesterday and missed everything. Yeah, like come you, out, as a New Yorker, you could have gone to the movies with an attorney general yeah. and come out with no attorney general. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, do you think that, that technology can slow that volatility yeah can we use it as, as a dampener and not just an accelerant yes um that's a really good question i like that's that a good man. question right yeah yeah that's worth exploring more so i'm not an expert in these things either i'm an observer of i read i absorb um osmosis information through hot tubs or whatever and i would i definitely hope so and, and i'll, I'll give you let me just give you a caveat to this yeah. In the, the speed with which we get information today mm -hmm. is fascinating. When you look back during the First World War, it took two and a half days to get news yeah. from the front. By the Second World War, it was down to like a day and a half to two days. If you go to, to the 80s, it still took 12-hour periods sometimes to get news, even yeah. though you had these – today, there are predictive AIs yeah. that are telling you the news before it fucking happens. Yeah. So 
No, it's frightening. And and so I think there's a there's a deep question, and it's probably like a biological, maybe neurological question. Is there a speed that's too fast for like human cognition, for absorption, for useful reflection? Twelve hours maybe better than two hours. Is two hours markedly better than two minutes? Is two minutes better than two nanoseconds? Like what's the threshold of where it's mostly destructive and not safe at any speed, so to speak? I think that's a fascinating question. I'm probably going to answer your question with some questions that somebody else should dig into more. I'm going to be thinking about this for a while. I also think that we could probably use our technology in creative ways to not just make everything more overwhelming and faster, but to give us rooms to breathe and space to consider, to outsource certain more automatable decisions to the edge and say, okay, let's let the machines handle that so that I can ponder the deeper questions. That's what we've done with technology. That's what we could have done with technology so far. We created washing machines, right? We created levels of automation that we benefit from without even thinking. And it was supposed to give us more time to think. And it just gave us more time to work. Yep. And, and work harder and generate more money to fund this consumer economy. But that too was a choice. It was a structural choice. Like individually, people were like, I want to work more. The way we set up our society demanded that we work more. So that when women entered the workforce, it didn't relieve the family. It put more stress on the family. Because now expenses are up and what we've done to the housing crisis, what we've done to unions, what we've done to healthcare and destroying childcare. Like, okay, but these are all choices. So I, I think it's complex and I think it's a hard, like delicate choreography. But I think we could build with technology for us, build with the people who are making it so that it served us. And we're still in a dynamic where we serve it and we're trying to play catch up to this it that other people made. And we have to step out of it for a minute and ask, what do we want? Like, what do we need? Who are we? And then let's answer those questions with technology, et cetera. Because um, we, we could have that. You know, Tristan's work, you had him on your show, and he helped me think about this concept of time well spent. And the way Facebook publicly measures its value for the longest time is how much time we spend on it. The more time you spend on Facebook, the better it is for Facebook, thus the better it is. And you could flip that around and say the more time you spend on Facebook, the worse a product Facebook is. If it takes you four hours a day per user to deliver value, you're doing something wrong. I want a Facebook where I get amazing value in 60 seconds. Like why don't we race in the opposite direction? How much of your life can I give back to you as a technology company? How little screen time do you need to get value from my service? What if Instagram asked that? The three dopest pictures you need to see before you get back to your damn life. We could optimize in another direction. So I don't, that's not the default. We're not naturally heading there, but we could. And if there's one thing I got to reiterate for my own sanity is that we got to try. All right. Uh, last, last little question, and then I know you have to run. Um, we talked a little bit about political correctness, mm -hmm. uh, and I sometimes feel that it's gone too far. Uh, I, you know, if you, if you want to make fun of me or my heritage or whatever it is, uh, as long as you're not being too mean or mm -hmm. rude, it's like, well, fine, you know, like, um, and I know that there is, there's pain and there's history, um, in, in a lot of the things that we are very sensitive to today, but do you think it's gone too far or sometimes? And I think there's so many caveats on this. Yeah, this I is, mean, this, this is, is a difficult another, conversation. And it's another podcast. Yeah. So I'll try to be brief because I can run on. Um, I'm reading a book 
Uh, my girlfriend and I are both reading it. She started it before me. It's called Kill All the Normies. Mm -hmm. And it describes internet culture, the rise of this new Nazism, white supremacy, a.k.a. alt-right, uh, and the, the, the transgressive nature of their work, which actually originated in the left transgressing the mainstream. And so this is a response to that being a response. And it does call into question some of how the left has operated, reacted, the, the term microaggressions, like I consider that a microaggression. I just don't like the word. Mm -hmm. And I think it sounds small, um, but I don't want to minimize. I don't think it's as simple as kids on college campuses are too sensitive or people can't take a joke. I think the intentions of the joke teller and the context make a lot. I think if communities of kind of uh, derogatory humor and playfulness are used to deny opportunity, i.k.a. a bunch of dudes making horrible jokes about women in their private space while they create economic opportunity for themselves that those women could never join. Oh, you're talking about Silicon Valley. Right. And I was thinking Wall Street. <laughs> Mirror coasts. <laughs> I think that's a problem and yep. worth examining. And I think as an artist... But as a comedian... Yeah. No, and as an artist, it's, um, it's a creative challenge to try not to step on those minefields, and it can be exhausting. Like, it's not all... I don't embrace it all, all the time. And I do... You know, I, I feel old, like I'm 40, and I'm like, am I 60? You know, because I work on college campuses a lot, and I've gotten to debates, discussions, arguments with students, and part of me is looking at them, and it's like, you're doing your job, you're pushing us, that's great. I was you 20 years ago, and I was saying to some 40-year-old, more, faster, more. And then another part of me is like, are you considering the effects of this? Is it too fast? Do we need more nuance in how we embrace? Closing thought, and this is... I can't overestimate like how much more this needs to be discussed, but we can't do this right now. There is a burden on, on people who have been oppressed to consider their oppressors in their own liberation. I'll, I'll repeat that again like a preacher. There is a burden on those who have been oppressed to consider their oppressors and how they fight for their own freedom. And Explain what you so, mean. To sub in values... Black people got to care about white people's feelings mm -hmm. as we fight for black freedom mm -hmm. because we can't actually do it without them. Because we see what happens, they re-Nazify, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I just had a picture of the Terminator in you my heard mind. This, you heard it here first. Re they re-Nazify. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting to explain things that you think people should know by now. It's exhausting to defend your right to exist. And I'm not just talking about blackness. I think women are going through this. I think there's so many different groups that are trying to assert their humanity. And in the face of that, because all of us have grown up in this stew, we're all actually victims of it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And to not consider what happens to the ego, to the self-identity of the person who never consciously chose their identity in their life, whether they had power or not. Yeah is unhelpful, right? It's unfair to ask that of oppressed people, but it is necessary to achieve freedom. Mm -hmm. And it requires a level of patience and compassion and, and love that is beyond, that is so much. But I don't think, I think strictly advocating for what you want at all costs will generate a backlash that you'll then have to contend with or your kids will have to contend with or, or their kids will have to contend with. So managing that, Managing your oppressor's emotions as you fight for your own freedom, that's a, that's a difficult task list, but I think that's part of how we get to a place of political correctness going too far. 
It's like, well, are we bringing everybody along on the ride? Like, how do we make this invitation? No, open? it's fascinating. Yeah. I think you're completely right. I think it's um, if you know when I when I do spend a little bit of time on Twitter here and there, and I see everyone attacking everyone because they said something wrong or asked yeah. the question wrong or made a statement wrong. And I mean, I, when I think about the, I remember in the beginning of the Me Too movement, there were people who, uh, who had tweeted, um, you know, these men who had tweeted, if you're a, I'm a, I'm a, a husband and a father and a, we have to protect women. And, yeah. and, and there was, and there were feminists and, and people who responded very aggressively and attacked these people. And I, what I wished was like, hey, let me explain to you why that's not the right way to, yeah. to say this. And I think that's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Like, we, just allow a little breathing room. Yeah. And don't, you know, there were, I used to get a lot of questions about how you deal with online battles, flame wars, harassment, et cetera. And one of the things I tried to practice is don't assume ill intent. In fact, try to assume good intent and confer, like offer patience. Like your gift in this moment is the assumption of goodwill, even if it's not yet been proven, and the gift of patience. And if we entered the space that way, as opposed to the assumption of ill will and, 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 and the gift of impatience, <laughs> right? The assumption of, of attack versus opening, then I think it's asking a lot, but we could approach these things differently. Um, and it's just, it's un, you know, Anand Girdardas is a writer that I've known, we've known for a while. He's written and talked about this and really more eloquent ways than I'm doing right now. So I'd recommend people look that up. You're being pretty eloquent. I, I'll give you, I'll give Thank you that. Thank you so much. Points for eloquence. Um, but I just, I don't, I just don't think it's as simple. And I, I, I'm trying to be nuanced in my words because it is a burden, right? It is work. And I just don't see another, a way that works without someone doing that. Everyone doesn't have to do it, but enough of us have to, you know, enter with love uh, first. All right. I appreciate this. It's been yeah. fantastic. Thank you so much for saying. I think you have to go catch a flight or to go to some meeting or meetings. I'm in LA. From this I'm going to do in you. LA. You're going to help me uh, read just uh, this little paragraph. We're going to do the thank you. Okay. I usually don't have my guests do this, but because you stayed here for a couple of nights and <laughs> drank my tea. Yes. Um, all right. Thank you to my guest, Baratunde Thurston. Uh, now read that little paragraph right there. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. We don't judge. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Can you tell them to really leave a review? Because people don't leave reviews. Seriously, y'all. Nick needs reviews. I need reviews. His ego demands Demand it. Them. Without that positive external <laughs> feedback, he doesn't even know if he's here or worth anything at all. Feed Nick. Uh, thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. Thanks to my editors at Vanity Fair. Thanks again to Bartunde. I will see you all next week, providing that we, provi we, that we survive. <laughs> that there is a next week. That there is a next week. That is going to be my new closer, that I will see you next week if there is a next week. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake at The New Yorker, to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. 
Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.